0: After these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in this place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000 and Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down and likewise of the fish as much they, as they wanted. So when they were filled, he sat or excuse me, he said to the disciples, gather up the fragments That remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, "This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world." Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone.
1: Well, we're thankful this morning to have uh, brother Joy Farrell come be with us. He uh he lives in Woodbury, Tennessee, but he works for the the Gospel of Christ. The Gospel of Christ is a media uh organization and they uh you can find them on TV, you can listen to them on the radio, they have podcasts on the internet. They uh, produce all types of materials from uh, DVDs to CDs. They produce uh, Bible class curriculum. So we're thankful that he is here with us today. Uh, again, he lives in Woodbury, Tennessee. He and his wife, Christy, have two daughters, and they have two granddaughters. He told me that every animal he's ever had, I think, was a female. And I said, man, that sounds like my wa- my life. But uh, <clears throat> I told him, I said, but we are going to have a, a grandchild uh, in June that's going to be a boy. So they kind of mess that up, but you know, it is what it is. Uh, the gospel of broadcast, uh, the gospel of Christ uh, began uh, or started business. It'd be 24 years in June, I guess, 24 years, June the 16th. And uh, so uh, Brother Joy Farrell has come to speak with us. I was noticing that he has a he has several degrees. He has a degree in uh, Bible and ministry, and and I have that same degree from that same institution. Did you have to take uh, plot calculus too? I never did understand that. Why why they throw a math uh, uh, a math course in a Bible ministry degree? But that's what happened. Anyway, we're thankful that he's here with us today. He gave a wonderful uh, Bible class presentation over the work uh, of the uh, Go- uh, Gospel of Christ, and we're thankful that that he's here with us. Come preach to us, brother.
2: Again, I want to say thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning and to, uh, be able to speak to you. And, uh, no, I didn't have to take that, but, uh, interestingly enough, going along with this lesson, I did have to take a nutrition class and uh, like to flunked it. <laughs> I, I did ask, uh, I did ask the instructor, I said, why do preachers need a, a, a nutrition class? She said, I'm married to one. So I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> All right. Our lesson today, hopefully I'll, uh, be able to make this, this thing work here. A little bit better than I did earlier. Our lesson today is entitled, A Lot from a Little, When Limits Are Removed. And, and I'll just go ahead and I'll give you a head nod if I need you to move it for me because it doesn't seem to cooperate yet this morning. A Lot from a Little, When Limits Are Removed. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. I appreciate the text being read. That kind of helps speed up the process just a little bit. Most of the text will be on the screen as we journey through the lesson. Now, I want to introduce this lesson uh, to you beforehand because I know you've heard many a sermon on the feeding of the multitudes uh, you've probably heard uh, as is my bible says the feeding of the five thousand and I want you to understand something today I want you to look at this a little differently um, no matter how many times you've heard this lesson no matter how many times you may have preached this lesson I'd like for you to kind of clear your mind and your thoughts of what preconceived notions you have about it we all know it was a miracle that was performed there's no doubt about that Interestingly enough, there is uh, this miracle is recorded in all four gospel accounts. There's only one miracle recorded in all four gospel accounts, and it is this one. And so I think God wants us to know a whole lot about this story. John illustrates the story very, very well for us, and that's why I've chosen his account of that. But like I said, I want you to kind of embrace what is in the text. Let me, let me explain why. A few years back, my dad and I started going to Florida for New Year's and uh, we would camp down there over the holiday and try not to watch any tv at all but what we did was we would plan some bible readings and the first year we did it i guess maybe around 2013 something like that 2014 we uh we decided we were going to read through the bible one time i was excited because believe it or not even though i've been around the church all my life i'd never completely read from front to back in the bible in one setting And I said, yeah, we'll do that. Let's do that. So I set up my iPad with that and I set up his iPad with that and we both had accountability to each other on the program I was using. So he could keep up with me. I could keep up with him. Well, about July, he kind of got through, uh, he kind of got through with his a little bit early when I wasn't quite through with mine. Uh, but I loaded him up another, uh, another version to read through as well and got him, uh, set to go again. Well, he got through almost two times that year. So we go back to Florida for the New Year's and we go in our camper and, and so we, uh, we, 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 decided we were going to do something a little different. We're going to do it in chronological order. But when we got done with chronological order, we're going to do it again from front to back. So we get scheduled for two times. He got through with his. I got through with mine. I was excited. He went ahead and went through the New Testament again. <laughs> He's, uh, 70, almost 78 years old. Alright, he got a little more time on his hands than I got. The next year, he said, I want to do it three times. I'm like, all right, so I got through a time and a half, and he got through three, but I'm going to tell you what I learned from that. Almost nothing. You know why? Because I was reading too fast. All right, so slow down this morning. Let's slow down, we'll look at John chapter 6. So as we look at the text here, and, all right, it works. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great multitude followed Him. I want to pause there and catch you up a little bit. John chapter 1, verse number 1, we're introduced to the Word. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. John 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we know that to be Jesus. We know that the Word was introduced to us as Christ. And so we understand that completely. John chapter 2, moving forward. As we look at John chapter 2, we know we've got the feast in, in Cana with a wedding feast and, in which a miracle was performed. You know, Jesus' mother Mary came to Him and she said that there's no more beverage. Now, we can discuss alcohol or not, whether it was, my opinion is it was not intoxicating beverage. But I will say this, whatever it was, it was not water. And so when Jesus came and He performed that great miracle, turning water into onos is what the word is, which I believe to be a grape juice. I mean, you've got to remember that that the grape, grape can't turn into grape juice from nothing, and that's what happened. But if you also remember, he told his mother, Mary, and he wasn't being rude. If it was said in our day and time, it would probably look at as rude, but he said, woman, it's not my time. It's not my time. Now, what did he mean by that? It was not his time to reveal the works of God at that point. But now, something changed in that, that atmosphere because Jesus went on and performed that miracle. So now people are inter- introduced to the, the son of Mary who can perform miraculous things. John chapter 3. Jesus embraces this opportunity to teach us more about who He is. In Nicodemus's account there in John chapter 3, starting around verse 4 or 5, Nicodemus came to Him, some of the other rulers at night, and uh, secretly came to Him asking who He was and if He was true with the Son of God. And what does He say in 3.16? He says, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, so that whoever, whosoever believeth on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so we understand now, so we've got the Word, the Word became flesh, we've got the Son of Mary, Jesus the Christ, who is human, and then we've got the Son of God. So we can combine all three of those in our context, in our setting, to say that God is certainly in the flesh as Jesus the Christ. Some call Him God-man. I don't know if that's a, a bad term or not, but He is God in the flesh. John chapter 4. We start to see a little bit more of the of the human side of Jesus as he's traveling from coast to coast and from realm to realm. And as he's going through, heading towards Jerusalem, he has to go from point A to point B. Now, when I put in my GPS this morning of which way to come here, this I actually did it last night to see what time I had to get up this morning. Y'all meet early. But <laughs> I'm in another time zone. I get to go back in the, in the central time here a little bit. But uh when I decided what time I needed to get up, I look at my map and it shows three ways I can get here. And one of them you can imagine I didn't even want to go to at all, considering there might have been snow across the mountain. But uh but the, you know, I could come through Manchester or I could go through McMinnville and, and so I, I chose the, the what I thought was the better path. But point A to point B always leads us to point B, right? Unless there's some obstacle. I will tell you this, a few years back we were traveling and we were going to uh Florida, I believe, by way of Atlanta, and we were coming through Chattanooga from my hometown of Woodbury. And we get to about 10 miles outside of Chattanooga, right toward the 59 split, and the, the interstate was backed up. I looked on my maps, and it showed it was backed up for over 14 miles. I thought, well, I got this. So I changed my old TomTom, the old GPS. wasn't as smart as my smartphone. But the TomTom, it gave me alternate directions. So I went down uh, 59, and I get off at Rising Fawn. And some of you are going to start laughing in a minute, because it told me that I could get over to Highway 11 through Rising Fawn. If you ain't ever been there, I encourage you to go one time. <laughs> point A to point B was not fun. Uh, we were in a sport utility, and I promise you I saw the rear bumper once. <laughs> That's the way we were turning. We ended up on some logging road. We did end up on Highway 11. What was interesting was the truck that was in front of me on 24 at 59 was in front of me on 11. So. <laughs> point A to point B, Jesus had to go through some area. He says that. In his own words, he said, I must needs go through Samaria. Well, Samaria was a place that wasn't the favored of the Jewish people because they worshiped differently. They, they didn't do things the way we did things, if you will. And so it wasn't the best place for them to go. I mean, it, they didn't get along. And so Jesus says, I must needs go through Samaria. Why? You read the story of the woman at the well. I'm telling you, that's a beautiful, beautiful story. We, we skip over that one too quickly too. Because that lady went there for a purpose. She went there to fetch water. And she ended up leaving her pot behind. You ever notice that? She left the pot behind. That was her job. That's what she was supposed to be doing. But with Jesus telling her more than about her life than she probably ever imagined anybody knew, she went out and she proclaimed the gospel. All right. Now she wasn't a woman preacher, don't get me wrong. But she went out and she told as a believer in Christ about this man. John chapter 5, we find the healings there, we find the different healings that are happening and and people start to see Jesus coming on the scene, they start understanding, this man's powerful, he is somebody else, he's nothing like we've ever seen before and so that brings us to John chapter 6, then a great multitude followed him. Now you know the context of where we're at, because they saw his signs, not because everything we just talked about, but because they saw this miraculous ability that he had which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. I have mountains in the background. Sometimes I have to do that when I preach this lesson, like in Oklahoma. (laughs) I don't think I have to do that much here. Y'all know what a mountain is, right? So as we look at the text continuing on, now the Passover, a feast of the Jews was near. Why is that significant? Well, there again, we got to stop and slow down just a little bit. There were three of the major feasts of the year that the Jews had to attend. The Passover being one of those, and and in and candidacy, I want to refer to the Passover as the Sunday morning Bible study and, and worship service. Most people would show up for it, okay? Uh, that's the, the intent of the Passover. If you were a good Jew, you would be there. And so, what I'm telling you that for is because this area multiplied. I mean, the population of the area increased greatly and greatly. I think about a few years ago, and and August 21st was the date, 2017. You may remember that date. I was at Polishing the pit up in Sevierville, Tennessee. A phenomenon happened that I probably will never see again in my lifetime. A solar eclipse. All right? And so as I watched that, I'm looking at my Facebook feed, and there's people in McMinnville posting miles and miles and miles of cars. There were more cars in McMinnville than there were people in McMinnville, I promise you. And I'm like, what in the world? Well, they were all trying to get to the best point to see it. And somewhere between here and Knoxville was the best point to see it in this area. And so all these people at the convention center were like, yeah, we're going down to, uh, maybe in Seymour or something, I can't remember now where, but, but they were like, yeah, we're going, it's only like 10 miles. Four hours later, they were posting, we're almost there. <laughs> I mean, so, and my point is, is all the people were coming to the area. You may see a little bit of that sometimes when people go into Manchester for the Bonnaroo Festival, right, if you go through there. The area swelled and swelled and swelled, and it got to be a great uh, vision that is seen there. The reason I tell you that is because this next passage. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, let's pause there for a minute. Where I live at is Short Mountain Bible Camp. I can go to the top of Short Mountain, and I can look out, and I can see the next two or three cities. I can look in any direction. I can see Smithville. I can see McMinnville. and I almost see Manchester. I can see over into Murfreesboro. And, uh, and if you've ever been to Short Mountain Bible Camp, you know there's one little bitty crooked road that goes up there, about like that back road over Lookout Mountain that I went across. And so as you're on the mountain up there, on Short Mountain, the tallest mountain in the area, until you get over into McMinnville, you can see for miles to come. And I can imagine this setting is very similar to that, when Jesus looks up and he sees, and I'm going to tell you something, I know the text is going to say 5,000, but if you look at Matthew's account, it's going to say 5,000 men among women and children. So friends, I'm, I'm going to expand that to say that there were probably fifteen to 20,000 people in the view of what Jesus had to see here. It doesn't matter, 5,000 is still a miracle, but let's think about it like that. He said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now as we continue on and look at the next text, Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. Let's pause. Where do you find anywhere in the Bible that Philip was responsible for the bread? It's not there, friends. Where do you find that Philip was responsible for carrying the money (laughs) bag? It's not there. Guess what? Judas is the one carrying the money bag. Why did Jesus ask Philip this question? Remember, I want you to slow down, okay? Otherwise, when we read this, we go, okay, yeah, Philip's one of the disciples. He asked Philip the question. Okay, well, why did he ask Philip the question? I'll inject that maybe he asked Philip this question because Philip was good at asking questions. And I think Jesus is wanting to maybe... Um, turn the table so to speak on Philip uh, a good friend of mine Herb Osip and and I know the term was originally coined through the International Gospel Hour originally but uh Herb Osip good friend of mine always likes to use a phrase are you listening are you listening I think that's what Jesus is doing to Philip I think he's telling Philip wake up it's time for you to see what's going on here Philip Philip answers him and says there's not enough money to buy bread for that a denarii was worth a common man, a Roman soldier's day's worth of labor. In my studies, matter of fact, I was just reading something about that this past week. That it was one day's worth of study of of labor. So we might think of today a minimum wage for one day work. Now, when you multiply that times two hundred, you might think, man, that's about half a year's worth of salary. It's more than that, because most of us get some time off for vacations. We get some weekends off. We get uh, sick days off will get bereavement days you know you, you end up my wife's a school teacher and she has to sign a contract that says she's going to work about 200 days a year and so uh, when we understand that is really about what a year's salary was put that in perspective now as you go down the road here if you go down the highway out here and you start to see all these dollar general stores think about how many dollar generals you'd have to stop at every eight miles in order to buy enough bread to feed that many people with your year's worth of salary. That's a lot of bread. And Philip said, that's not even enough that every one of them can have a little. You know, we're going to take the Lord's Supper in a few minutes, we're going to have a little. Not even enough for everybody to have one or two bites. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves, two small fish, but what are they amongst so the many? You ever wonder why Andrew is listed as Simon Peter's brother in this verse? Again, I'm asking you to slow down. Did we not already know who Andrew was? If we don't, we didn't read John. (laughs) Because John 1, verses 35 through 42 tells me, I think, uh, the reason why we know that Andrew is Simon Peter's brother in this particular verse. John 1, 35 through 42, the disciples are being called to Jesus. Well, Jesus comes on the scene, they're... they're, um, Learning of John the Immerser, John the Baptizer, and, uh, and, and, I, and I guess Andrew looks up and he sees the Messiah. I don't know how he recognized him, but he sees Jesus and he says, are, are you the Messiah? And he runs to him. No, that's not what happens. He goes and he gets his brother, who's his brother? Simon Peter. And he says, hey brother, I found the Messiah, come. Alright? The reason I tell you that is because I believe that Philip and Andrew both are good about bringing people To Jesus. John chapter 11, I believe it is, when the Grecian men come together and they say, we want to meet this man that you call Jesus. They come to Philip and ask him that. And Philip says, well, let me take you to." We would expect him to say Jesus, but he doesn't. He says to Andrew, and Andrew will take you to Jesus. I think the two of them were significant in this story because what happens next? Andrew brings a young lad. What's his name? Don't know. How old is he? I don't know. In my picture that I paint in my mind, he's uh, some of our young lads here today, about maybe 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. That's just how I picture him. You picture him however you want to. You can picture him as old as Rick, as old as me. I don't care, however you picture him. But as you picture him, I want you to think about something there. He has a sack lunch, all right? He has uh, five barley loaves and two small fish. If I can get my, my pointer to change here, I'll show you what that, uh-oh. My picture didn't come up. That's because it's not very appetizing. It's uh, uh, supposed to be a picture of fish and bread, all right? But I want you to understand something. That was a common young lad because when we think about that, still didn't come up, I tried. <laughs> when, we, when we think about that and we, we realize what he's got there, he doesn't have the favored meal, all right? He doesn't have the wheat that is called three times as much as barley, as we'll see in Revelation 6 and verse number 6. We also understand that he doesn't have a whole lot of it because in uh, another place in the Bible, 2 Kings chapter 4, we see that someone else is giving bread to people and there's 20 loaves and it's not enough for 100 people and he's told to give it to them anyway and there'll be enough left over that they can partake of it and bring it back. And so I find that very interesting uh, in that case as well. But I also want you to think about this young lad in another instance for just a moment. There again, my nine, 10, 11, 12 year old boy, as he is there, he has his sack lunch. Now you remember they're up on the mountain, as the text told us? At some point in time, they've either the boy has either come up to the top where they are, or Jesus and the disciples have come down. I can't really tell based on the text because it, it says that Jesus went back up to the mountain. so I'm not sure if they're halfway up. I'm, I'm not sure, but I know this. Actually, I know it by way of illustration. When my youngest daughter was six years old, we had season passes to um, uh, Stone Mountain, Georgia. Y'all probably are familiar with that big granite mountain. And we went because you get season passes for like ten more dollars than you could a regular ticket. So we just got season passes. My brother lived near, and we'd go visit. And, and uh, matter of fact, that trip I was talking about, we were probably going to stop and visit there while we were going. And so the first couple times we go, my youngest daughter, we rode the train around the mountain and all this, and she saw all these people that are. You know, they'd, they'd, they'd go between some trees, and then they'd disappear. She's like, where are they going, Daddy? Oh, they're, they're walking up the mountain. <laughs> the next time we'd go, she's like, hey, I want to walk up the mountain. I'm like, no, no. <laughs> and so the next time we'd go, we rode the tram up and looked out, and here all these people are coming up the mountain. You know, she's like, look, they made it. We can do it too. And I'm like, no, no, nah. Well, the next time, she says, can we please, Daddy, please, Daddy, please, Daddy? And Rick knows that feeling. Okay. Okay. I'm thinking we'll get a quarter mile up and she'll, like, huh, I can't do this, you know. She's got on a pair of Crocs. If y'all don't know what Crocs are, you're too young or too old. <laughs> but she has on a pair of Crocs. I might have had on a pair of tennis shoes. We start up this mountain. After what felt like 10 hours, uh, we, we, we reach a sign that said 0.1 mile to the top. I was excited because it's only 1.2 miles and I, I knew we'd gone, you know, almost all, about 90% of the way. And so we get to the very top of the mountain. And I look up, and I'm about to fall over. And I was much healthier then. <laughs> I'm kidding. And I see my wife and my oldest daughter. And they're like, hey. You see, they rode the tram up <laughs> and waited on us. And we get up there, and I am parched. It's in July. It's hot. I didn't take my salty snacks with me. I didn't have any water. We would we had approached this mountain. I mean, as a matter of fact, I think my daughter got sick a couple times on the way up. And and we get up there and we absolutely are just unprepared. And my, my oldest daughter's sipping on an empty Slurpee. You know how that sound is, and, you know. And I'm like, please go get me something to drink. And my wife says, well, I left my purse in the locker down at the bottom. I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me. So you know, basically, my point is, is how in the world did that young lad make this journey without eating his lunch? If I'd have had those two dried fish and those five barley loaves. On that trip up the mountain, there probably wouldn't be nothing but crumbs left when I got there. All right, so I want you to think about that. Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in this place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples those sitting down. Did you catch that? Could Jesus not have miraculously just fed the people? Could they not have set up what we might call an all-you-can-eat buffet? I mean, that's what we're looking at. Right? Could He not have just set it up and said, okay, come eat? That's not what He did. Notice what He did. When He had given thanks, He distributed them to who? The disciples. And the disciples to those sitting down. I want you to think about this. There again, this is the third time we read of an instance like this in the Bible. The first time, you might not recognize without thinking it through. The first time actually is a two-part fold. It's when the children of Israel are in the wilderness and they don't have anything. They complain about what they've got to eat and God rains down manna from heaven as much as they want, but they got to go get it, right? But then they complain about that. <laughs> and, and and so what what happens? God rains down quail so much that they eat and they eat and they eat until they get sick. But in the whole magnitude of that story, Moses is getting credit for that. There's a reason for that. In the second story, when we looked at it in 2 Kings, we see that the prophet, the man of God, gets credit for uh, being able to produce that food. I want you to see here the disciples here are getting credit for distributing the food. Church, don't miss the picture because you and I are being given the food to distribute to the world. Don't miss the picture. God had a purpose for this. He distributed it to the disciples disciples to those sitting down likewise the fish as much as they wanted not just enough to fill them but as much as they wanted. Go ahead next slide. There we go. So when they were filled he said to the disciples gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Interesting term there. Therefore they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Hey, I got that picture. There's your uh there's your lunch, right? <laughs> not very appealing to me but uh there it is. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. I want you to see something there. These men, even though they had seen all these miraculous signs, they had heard about this this Messiah, they had they had seen what had happened and come on the scene, they watched all these miracles being performed, they they'd heard these stories. They still missed it. They missed the entire picture. I include verse fifteen in this sermon because it, it tells me that that, that these men were, were wrong. They were going to force him to make him an earthly king. Now, we know that even his own disciples didn't quite understand. Matter of fact, you go on and read through John chapter 6 and, and you find out that there's some very sad statements made there. I think one of the saddest verses in the Bible is in John chapter 6. It's verse number 66. If you've never read it, let me paraphrase it for you. And many of his disciples turned and walked with him no more. Whew. Can you imagine? And, and then, and and you know, another lesson for another time, but, you know... Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, or his apostles, he says, are you leaving me too? I mean, we're down from 5,000 plus now to about 12 again. You get it? <laughs> it's tough. That's tough. Let's see if we can turn this into more of an earthly story now. Rachel's picture didn't come up. I don't guess it's on your screen, is it? No? Okay. Well, maybe you'll see her in a minute. There's this cute little girl that's supposed to be on the screen. Her name is Rachel Beckwith. She was eight years old in the picture that you can't see. <laughs> This is what you ad libbing, right? <laughs> Ever I do that, Rick. <laughs> well, she's eight years old, beautiful little girl. She uh, uh, went to a presentation uh, called Clean Water Initiative at the church that her and her family attended, and they told a story about how uh, millions of children would not reach their fifth birthday because they would die because they didn't have clean water to drink. Well, Rachel's birthday was coming up in June of that year, June twelfth, two thousand eleven, and. And so her parents, or her mom at least, was planning a, a birthday party for her. And and so she, uh, you know, they were working on what they were going to do, as many of you who have children or uh, have been involved in birthday parties will understand. And so when Rachel heard this, she was convicted in her heart that maybe she could help. And so instead of having a birthday party, she asked her mom, she said, could we set up an online fundraiser to raise money for these children uh, in which need this money? And so she said, and you can see her picture there a little bit, uh, but she said, I'd rather people to give the money to this instead of my birthday. So mom said, okay, we'll do that. So they set up this online fundraiser, and they set a goal. And that goal uh, may come up on the screen, may not. There it is. Uh, that goal was $300. And so as Rachel set this goal of $300, you and I would say for an 8-year-old little girl, that's, a, that's an amazing goal. And it is. $300 is a lot of money for an 8-year-old. It's a lot of money for a 49-year-old, too. I'll just tell you that. Well, her birthday came, and over the days, uh, some people donated, and she got $220. Now there again, that's, to, in my opinion, she she did a great task. I mean, she reached 70-something percent of her goal. But that discouraged Rachel. And we've all been there. We've all been discouraged by a goal that we've set. Maybe, maybe it's, you know, something like this. Maybe it's to, to be debt-free by a certain, whatever the goal might be, and you've not reached it. And you get discouraged, you get discontented, you get disheartened. And so Rachel did. And so she asked her mom, she said, will you take the campaign down? And so they did. A few days later, a few weeks later, this horrific accident happens and there's two semi-trucks involved in this and ten cars. It's hard to see, but that little white, uh, over beside the tow truck, there's a white truck and then there's another white vehicle. That vehicle's up on its side. That is Rachel's mom's car. Rachel's mom was able to get out of the car. I don't know if her little sister was with her or not, but they were able to escape, if so, with very minimal injury. But Rachel was trapped inside the car. So they had to extricate her from the car and they, they took her from the car and she was unconscious. The paramedics told, uh, told Rachel's mom that she needed to get to the hospital as quick as she could and, and so they did. And, and so, you know, after several hours of working on Rachel, the doctors come out and, and Rachel's family is standing there and they asked for, you know, what's going on? And, and, uh, the doctor said, well, um, she's in a coma. And they said, well, well, you know, what can we do? And he said, if you're praying people, I would pray. I found that very, um, enlightening that we hear medical professionals say that. But he said also, I might suggest that it's been said in several uh, journals that people in coma can hear surroundings that are going around you know things that are going on around them so if you can think of positive things to do and say maybe you can say those things around her so the preacher at the church that she attended had heard about the situation he was there and he thought you know what he asked Rachel's mom he said can we reactivate the campaign I'm going to donate the other 80 dollars to encourage okay so she did that well then a member of this church, I think it was a community church, but a member of this church happened to be a professional athlete by the name of Matt Hasselback. <laughs> he tweeted the situation out. And immediately money started pouring in to this campaign. Over the course of the next three days, $47,000 went into this little $300 campaign that Rachel had set up in hopes that she would hit that $300. That's significant. Here's the reason it's significant is because about a month earlier, this young man said he was going to donate his 17th birthday to the same Clean Water Initiative, and his goal was $47,000. And to date, you can still find it online. He hit the $47,000, and it stopped. took him months to do it. Rachel did it in three days. Here's the difference. Some of you know that young man's name. Probably many of you. This young man that was turning 17's name was Justin Bieber. See, until about five minutes ago, you probably didn't know who Rachel Beckwith ever was. And see, Rachel became significant in a manner of just days, even though people didn't really know who she was. Our story changes a little bit. If I can get my slide? Go ahead and click my slide for me, please, sir. On July 23rd, the doctors came and told the family that there just was no hope left, that she wasn't going to recover. And so they made the decision to go ahead and turn off the machines, and Rachel passed from this life. She didn't pass from this life in vain, though, because there again, this 9-year-old little girl had something in mind of what she could do to help others, and she did just that. She created that campaign. Go ahead, next slide for me, please. And in that campaign, you may have to hit enter for me. Me and this little thing, well, went too far. In this campaign, I'll go ahead and skip that slide. In this campaign, she ended up raising $1.2 million by the end of 2016. Not only that, but another 400 plus campaigns were set out in her name that raised $1.7 million. So by the end of 2016, almost $3 million was raised for the Clean Water Initiative in Africa in Rachel's name. And the the previous slide shows a picture of a man holding a sign up in that area thanking Rachel and her family for the generosity that they had. You see, when we think about Rachel, I can't help but think about that young lad in our story. I don't know his name. I don't know who his parents are. I don't know how long he'd been following Jesus if he just happened to see a crowd and said, I want to hear what's going on. I don't know anything about him. All I know is he had a sack lunch and a heart of compassion. This little girl, all she had was her life. Now, she didn't give her life for others. I, I don't want you to think I'm saying that. What I'm saying is that she gave up something. She gave up her birthday party for the good of somebody else. Not ever realizing in her lifetime what impact she had. Now, you kind of see the subtitle, When Limits Are Removed. Because friends, I'm going to suggest that each and every one of us is just like Rachel. We're each just like that young lad. We can do something in our lives to help others. As I mentioned, John chapter 6, Jesus went on to talk about the bread of life and they didn't get it. They didn't understand that he was talking about himself. You know, he even referenced the manna that came from God in that. He referenced that he is the living bread. He also said he's the living water. Now, I suspect there's water behind me right here. I don't know how cold or hot it is. I guarantee you it's not the cleanest water I'd want to drink, but it's the cleanest water you'll find today. You know why? Because it washes your sins away. You see, just like the little girl in the story, just like the little boy in the story, we all have a part, but we can only play our part if our mind and our hearts are where they're supposed to be. Today, you've got an opportunity if you're not a Christian, what are you waiting on? Are you waiting on somebody to invite you? I'm inviting you right now. Jesus says, come unto me all ye who labor and are heavy laden. That's Jesus' invitation, not my own. But friends, maybe something today has triggered your heart to realize that maybe there's some sin in your life. You know, that that, that water that's there that cleanses us, it continually cleanses us. The blood of Christ does that, John 1, verse number 7. Verse 1, John 1, 7. But we also need to realize that we've got to do something about it. We've have to confess our sins and our faults. We need to confess to God that we're wrong. James 5.16 says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Maybe you need the prayers of this church, this very congregation today. Maybe you have sin in your life. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Sin separates us from God. God can't, it's not that He's slack. It's not that He can't hear, but He does not hear the prayers of a sinner. He doesn't hear us. We're separated. Friends, today, when you leave here, you can have the cleanest water. You can have the blood of Christ cleansing your sins. Won't you come right now to stand and sing?